0: Hello, welcome to ta Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be exploring the world of a 19th century European Muslim book collector, Mustafa Muhibbi, who lived in what is today Bosnia-Herzegovina. <laughs> Muhibbi wasn't a famous man, neither in his lifetime nor today. But he was, or at least he posthumously became a very important figure. And he became very important because of his collection of books, and crucially because that collection of books, his library, survived intact. That's an incredible rarity. And what it's meant is that we're able to reconstruct the literary, the cultural, the religious, the, even the bureaucratic world, of a Muslim in mid-nineteenth-century south-eastern Europe. Mohibi's library opens up for us not only a world of Islamic law and mysticism, two of Mohibi's key interests as an Ottoman judge, but also of magic, astronomy and astrology, medicine, and crucially, multilingualism. This is a library with manuscripts in a range of languages which were alive in Southeastern Europe in this last phase of Ottoman rule. Leading me through this world is Dr. Tatjana Pajic-Vukic, She is Senior Research Fellow at the Archives of Croatian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Zagreb, Croatia, where she's also been teaching Arabic for the past 30 years. And she's the author of a book about Mustafa Muhibi and his library, which was first published in Croatian in 2007 and then was published in English in 2011 as The World of Mustafa Muhibi, Akadi from Sarajevo. Hello, Tatiana. Welcome to Akbas Chamber.
1: Hello, Niall. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm so looking forward to our discussion today, drawing on your on your really fascinating book. And talking about and around the, the world you've opened up from your book, we're going to be discussing a, a 19th century European Muslim book collector by the name of Mustafa Muhibbi. And we'll be using him and especially his library to explore the religious, the cultural, the literary life of Muslims in Bosnia, in Southeastern Europe in the first half of the 19th century. And specifically, we'll really be talking about the the book world, the literary world, the intellectual world of Sarajevo. So in people of a certain generation, certainly mine, former Yugoslavia, but... In Muhibi's time, Muhibi died in 1854, this was still part of the Ottoman Empire, as it would be for another 25 years after after his death. So can you start us off, Tatiana, by introducing us to this world, this late Ottoman world, in which Muhibi lived, and its socio-political, but also its cultural dimensions?
1: Uh, Yes, as you said, Mustafa Muhybi lived uh, in the first half of the 19th century in the Eyalet, which is province uh, of Bosnia, uh, and it was the uh, westernmost province of the Ottoman Empire. I would just say several words about uh, uh, the previous period. Bosnia was uh, conquered by the Sultan Mehmed II, in uh, 1463, it was only 10 years after the fall of Constantinople, but uh, the process of establishing Bosnia as an Ottoman province lasted until the end of the 16th century, when the Eyalet of Bosnia was established, and it included also Herzegovina and uh, some parts of today's Croatia and Montenegro and Serbia. In Bosnia, due to uh, the relatively fast pace of the Islamization, already in the early period, uh, uh, local residents who became Muslims began to occupy positions in uh, uh, judicial, administrative, religious, and uh, military uh, and educational hierarchies and over time there was less and less need to appoint persons from other parts of the Ottoman Empire. So the majority, uh, the huge majority of the inhabitants were uh, South Slavic, people who are South Slavic origin. Uh, according to the family lore, which uh, is not a completely reliable source, Muhibi's ancestors came from Konya, uh, which is the city in uh, central Anatolia, Uh, and uh, they may be among those who came to Bosnia, who are of Turkish origin, were of Turkish origin, but they merged with the local Slavic population. Um, He lived in the last century of the Ottoman rule in Bosnia. He, as you said, died in uh, 1854, and it was uh, only 24 years before Austria-Hungary uh, would occupy bosnia and in that last period uh, in that uh, long 19th century uh, the institution classical institutions of the ottoman empire were dissolving and the it was a period of um, territorial losses the empire was really shrinking and uh, in bosnia it was particularly uh, difficult as it was a border province and uh, there uh, the trust in the central government was undermined, and the power of local notables grew. Uh, Bosnia Muslims refused to take part in military operations uh, because uh, they um, they were really disappointed uh, by the Sultan's move, uh, Sultan's decision to give to Serbia some territories which belonged to Bosnia. Uh, And it was after Bosnian soldiers, as Ottoman soldiers, participated and fought and lost their lives uh, in the operations uh, which had to suppress uh, uprisings in Serbia. So it was uh, really a very, very unfavorable situation. And so Bosnian Muslims uh, um, wanted to establish, wanted the Sultan to give Bosnia a certain autonomy inside uh, the empire, and in 1831, an uh, armed uprising uh, erupted against uh, the central power, Uh, but uh, the the rebels um, lost in the next year and uh, Mustafa Muhibi did not play any distinguished role in these uh, events. Um, uh, uh, Historical sources do not mention him, but there are some notes in his uh, notebooks regarding uh, the then events. Uh, He spent, uh, as you said, uh, most of his life in Sarajevo. Today it is the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but in the Ottoman Empire it was de facto the uh, political center, uh, but the the administrative center in the most part of the Ottoman era was uh, the town of Travnik, the seat of the Bosnian governors. Uh, and um, uh, in the urban centers of Ottoman Bosnia and in Sarajevo also, Muslims made up the majority of the population, but there were also Christians, uh, Catholics and Orthodox Christians who also lived there and uh, as well as Sephardic Jews who after being expelled from the Iberian Peninsula uh, at the end of the 15th century found refuge in the then more tolerant and inclusive Ottoman Empire. So Sarajevo was a typical Ottoman town divided into commercial area, çarşı, and uh, numerous uh, residential areas, mahalles, and its urban landscape was dominated by Islamic architecture like mosques, like um, Bezistan or Bedestan, the covered market, uh, uh, hammams, public baths, and uh, uh, also uh, fountains. And uh, there were also Catholic and Orthodox churches and synagogues. So it was really a multicultural and multi-religious uh, town. And um, The inhabitants of Bosnia, regardless of their confessional affiliation, spoke South Slavic language in their everyday communication. Uh, It is in Ottoman sources of that time, it was called Bosnian or Bosniak. Uh, The Turkish language, uh, the, the official language of the empire, uh, was not heard in the streets or in everyday communication between people, as I have mentioned. These uh, the inhabitants were mostly Slavs. Uh, many of them learned Turkish language to a greater or lesser extent. We we can't know how many of them and. Uh, What was the level of uh, education in Turkish language? Because sources are not, we we have, are not enough to say like uh, 20% of people knew it well or so. But uh, some of them were educated in Istanbul, in Edirne, and other centers. Some of them needed Turkish language uh, for their business, for trade. Some, of course, Uh, Many of them went uh, um, as soldiers in uh, military operations, and it was also the opportunity to learn uh, Turkish. But beyond practical, pragmatic concerns, it was a language of prestige and power in the Ottoman Empire, and this could have been a strong motivation for learning it. Uh, The Muslims had their own schools, as was the case throughout the empire, elementary schools, mehdebs, where the Arabic script and reading of the Quran were taught, and higher schools, madrasas, which are usually called religious schools, but because main part of the curriculum was um, um, like Quranic exegesis, exegesis, uh, Islamic law, hadith, which are traditions uh, about the deeds and sayings of Prophet Muhammad, uh, and also, of course, Islamic law, its theory, and also practical branches and so on. And there was strong emphasis on learning Arabic, Arabic grammar and Arabic stylistics in these schools, because Arabic was the main language of uh, theological literature and literature on uh, Islamic law. And therefore, educated Muslims learned both Arabic and Turkish, uh, two languages which are uh genetically and typologically very different from their mother tongue it was really um hard to learn these languages and some also learned persian uh, which uh, but uh it was uh, not that widespread uh only in the circles um uh, it was a language of high poetry and of also mysticism and um uh, it was especially widespread in the circles of Mevlevi Sufi uh, mystical order, uh, as the great poem by, by Mevlana, Jelaluddin, Rumi, was Methnevi, was written in Persian. So, to sum up, members of different confessional groups had a lot of common in their everyday life. In the, uh, trade in uh, normal everyday communication, but they ha- and the spoken language was the same. But they had distinct, separate, learned, written cultures that used different languages
0: and different scripts. That's really fascinating, Tatiana. You've given us this sense of this, yeah, this this multilingual environment, and not least, as you pointed out, that that Arabic, Turkish, and Bosnian as well as Persian, these are from completely different language groups. We have sort of Semitic language, we have Turkic language, we have a Slavic language, and we have Persian as a sort of an Indo-European language, but of a completely different sort of subgroup from the Slavic languages. So just grammatically and all sorts of other ways, this is very hard. And you and, and you mentioned, yeah, the different scripts that are in use here as, as well. And and even there are some extra complications, as you will know better than I do, or simplifications I have might depend, I suppose who was doing the reading, that we even have Bosnian, so a South Slavic language, written in the Arabic script or the, the Ottoman version then. It's called uh, al borrowing the, the the Arabic word via Spanish. So, again, it's kind of very multilingual, multiscriptural world of books. And this is generating too, I mean, as you pointed out, by laying out the kind of the political landscape of this this last phase, this Ottoman twilight, there in the westernmost zone of the Ottoman Empire, this this language, sort of language language landscape, this linguistic landscape, is playing into the kind of cultural politics of the period, isn't it? With the assertions of, of different groups in the in the uh, in, in the Balkans of of the, the right to learn, to teach, to publish, even. Um, in their languages. And I think one of this, one of the interesting things about Mohibi is he's not one of the great national heroes that emerge out of the Balkans. I was thinking of Naim Frasheri, the the Albanian Muslim author and Sufi who writes in Persian, he writes in Ottoman, but he chooses to write also in his native language, Albanian, becomes a national hero. Mohibi's kind of keeping his head head down, I think, sort of politically in a, in a way. So he's important, as you'll tell us, because he left us this big collection of his books. So I think this is the point when we have to ask who was Mustafa Mohibbi and what factors shaped his interest as a book collector, because he was... After all, as you pointed out for us, he was both a a Sharia judge, a Qadi, as his day job, and also a a Sufi mystic. Uh,
1: Yes, and uh, in determining his, uh, how to say, to use this overworn term, the uh, components of his identity, uh, we can start from the inscription on his tombstone which is still uh, standing in the in a small courtyard of a mosque uh, in Sarajevo where he was uh, buried and the inscription says that he was absorbed in sharia law islamic holy law and sufism islamic mysticism and that he was constantly preparing himself uh, for the hereafter uh and uh, we can understand that this is the expression of the way his contemporaries perceived him, and uh, as uh, you mentioned, uh, uh, the historical sources uh, do not have, uh, of that time do not have to say a lot about him. There are only several notes in sources about him. Uh, I wouldn't say that he had his head down in a way. It was he behaved the way it was uh normal at that time uh, in a way that he still uh, perceived his himself as a bosniak of course but but also as an ottoman subject and an ottoman uh, bureaucrat in a way ottoman um, he was in the ottoman judiciary and administration and um, uh it was uh, only uh, after, although as i said there was a uh, a movement uh, uh, and demands for Bosnian autonomy, but still inside uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, it 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 is the the period before national uh, really um, before defining like national uh, uh, nationalities in Bosnia. For example, Catholics at that time they would never say uh, as today that they are Croats. They were Bosnians Catholics. The same with Orthodox people. So, um, uh, it was the period when it was too early to say, I am Bosniak and my language, and I will only write in my language. But uh, yes, it is interesting uh, what you said that they wrote uh, in their language, but in a bit uh, um, adapted um, Arabic script. Uh, In... uh, uh, some uh, um, There are some texts and poems uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, manuscripts from Ottoman Bosnia, uh, but in his library uh, there are only like a handful of uh, Bosnian words translated into Turkish or vice versa. And what is interesting, they're mostly names of plants, uh, which means it's something connected to his everyday uh, life in which he used his Bosnian language, of course, when talking with other people about plants or about uh, healing and recipes and so on. So uh, to return to his uh, judicial career, he uh, was a Qadi, which uh, uh, is uh, usually translated as Sharia judge, but we, we can say something about it later. So it means that he belonged to the class of Ulema, uh, religious scholars and experts in Islamic law but this designation is an umbrella term uh, and uh, there are members of ulema who are not well educated who served as uh, like lower ulema served as uh, for example imams, prayer leaders uh, or preachers in uh, in the mosques. Um, but uh, Muhibi's ancestors also belonged to ulema And so it ran in the family as well as uh, the Sufi affiliation. It was also present in previous generations of the family. So when we say Qadi, uh, we say Sharia judge, and it is uh, uh, right, Uh, it is uh, precise, because he um, uh, he adjudicated on the basis of the Sharia law. But also he was authorized to, as other Qadis, to implement canons which are uh, secular to say, uh, uh, legislations uh, enforced by the sultans. And they were, of course, in line with the Sharia, they couldn't be opposite to Sharia, but they mostly mostly, uh, were related to uh, financial and uh, and also um, penal law. And uh, also, Cadiz disbursed estates, registered marriages and divorces, participated in town administration, participated in uh, logistic preparations for for, uh, military campaigns, and uh, also they were intermediaries between the central government and uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area of their uh, jurisdiction. So we can say he had judicial and administrative but also notarial uh, duties. Uh, to become a Qadi, he had to finish to go to um, be educated in a madrasa but unfortunately we don't know whether it was only in Bosnia or he went somewhere to other centres uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, his ownership records in his manuscripts enabled me to reconstruct his career path. And uh, he would write, for example, this book is owned by Mustafa Muhibi, uh, temporarily a kadi in Jajce. Jajce is a town in Bosnia. Uh, he was sometimes also appointed uh, as a deputy judge and sometimes as a court scribe. And by the end of his life, he was chief court scribe in the uh, court of sarajevo um, why did he say temporarily because there were regula- regulations stipulating that the mandate of a qadi should not exceed uh, 20 months in one place there were some um, exceptions and after that he would be without post and without salary um therefore such a career was certainly associated with a great sense of insecurity um, after reconstructed his, his reconstructing his professional life based on the ownership marks and some other notes i became aware of this number of places and also i realized that he spent his mandate sometimes um, lasted only like four months, for example. And so I got an impression of a very tiring um, life path marked with uh, insecurity. Uh, at the time when I was writing the book, I didn't know about one very interesting article by a uh, Turkish scholar, Ahmed Tunç Shen. Uh, here uh, it's something like emotional universe of insecure scholars and he wrote uh, about it uh, on the basis of a journal of akadi but also there are letters confirming that it was very hard life because you have all the time to fight and to uh, f- to find uh, someone who would say something in the right place in your favor so that you, uh, you get a uh, a good post. For example, Muhibi had to travel from Bosnia to Albania and Bulgaria to work. And sometimes he would stay just several months. And at that time to travel in Bosnian mountains, Albanian mountains, it was really hard. So um, Ahmed Tunch uh, compares it with the situation in today's Academia, (laughs) like you have really, you you have a post, but at the same time, you have to fight all the time to keep it or to find another post after this one uh, finishes and so on. And another important path uh, of his life uh, was the Sufi part. He was uh, a member of a Dervish mystical order. Uh, we don't know which one. He doesn't mention it. Although some, some there are some indications that it could have been Mevlevi order. His great great grandfather was mentioned as a murshid, spiritual guide, in a mystical order. So um, it was really a part of of uh, family tradition. Uh, but Sufism was spread in all strata. Uh, Of the then society, and uh, many members of the ulema were also parts of uh, Sufi circles. Um, The name Muhibbi, which means um, the one who loves, and of course, the one who loves God, is a name of a novice in uh, mystical order, of someone who is in the first phase of uh, becoming uh, on the path of becoming um, a Sufi. And um, uh, it is uh, in his in one of his ownership records, uh, he wrote uh, in Arabic uh, uh, that he is Haji, Al Hajj Mustafa Muhibi, which means that he had performed a pilgrimage to Mecca, uh, son of Mustafa, son of Ibrahim, son of Yusuf, son of Hussein called Muhibbi among the brothers. That is how he wrote it. Some other inscriptions confirm that he, by brothers, Ikhwan, he meant Sufi brothers. And um, uh, Muhibbi is the name he also used as his pen name in his poems. And it was also the pen name of the Sultan uh, Suleyman the Magnificent, he was also Muhibbi uh we find his name this name in the last districts of his poem um in the ottoman empire uh, adopting a distinct pen name uh, was the prerequisite for young men and uh, much rarely women uh who wanted to enter literary circles and uh, in the following generations, the Slavic patronymic suffix "ich" was added to that, and so it became the permanent family name, Muhibic. And um, the content of Muhibic library largely reflects uh, both lines, but the, uh, uh, the uh, Sufi line is not that represented as the judicial one. But his library is much, much more than that.
0: Well, this is really helpful because we're going to explore the library. I mean, that, that, that's what the basis of your book was about, and with very good reason, because it's so unusual that we have a complete library of of an individual that survived from, from this period. And you've helpfully given us a sense, yeah, of these sort of two lines of Textual, let's say, uh, interest the, the sort of the judicial line of interest and the and the Sufi line line of interest, and I think it's it, it might be worth sort of emphasising the, the point too that in this period, Sufi Islam, Sufism within the Ottoman Empire, this is entirely orthodox. I mean, even the the last effective Ottoman Emperor Abdul Hamid II, somewhat a few years after. Mohibi's death; he comes to power, but he is really pushing the Sufi orders as the the essence of the official, let's say, orthodox Islam of the empire. So that Mohibi is a Sharia judge and a Sufi and an Ottoman bureaucrat. This is an entirely natural combination, and not least this link to the to the Mevlevis as you as you said, the order founded by or at least founded by Rumi or his. His Sons, which again was deeply built into the Ottoman Empire, not least then in in Southeastern Europe. But let's turn to the heart of the matter, then the library. So can you tell us more about its contents, the, the various languages that are in the library then, of these 163 manuscripts, and how this library survived intact when the vast majority of private collections of other such educated Muslims, whether in Southeast Europe or elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire, have been divided and dispersed, and we can't have a conversation about them.
1: Yes, so without this library, Muhibbi would be completely unknown. So I'm very happy that I had uh, the opportunity to, you know, to wrestle some uh, uh, an individual from oblivion and I think it was worth doing that. And um, the, first I would like to say that when we speak about his library, we are talking about uh, uh, manuscript books. Uh, there were in the in the family library, there are also some printed books, but uh, we do know not know which uh, member of the family purchased them. Uh, so it is quite well known that um, uh, the first official printing press with Arabic letters was established in the Ottoman Empire in Istanbul in 1727, but uh, the um, manuscript books persisted well into the 19th century. Uh, the library of the Muhibic family, uh, I say family because I will try to say what was Muhibis and what was Um, um, The other part contains 164 manuscript books, but many of these books uh, uh, comprise more than one text. Uh, In modern scholarship, they dub it it multiple text manuscripts, sometimes even dozens of of different texts. Sometimes in one volume you can find texts uh, from uh, one discipline and sometimes texts from completely diverse Uh, fields of uh, knowledge. Therefore, the total number of texts in this library is much, much higher. And uh, we know for sure that Muhibbi purchased uh, at least 80 books because they bear his ownership records or some uh, annotations that can be uh, certainly connected to him. Uh, But uh, we can speculate about the reminder of the library. But Uh, in case he had like 100 books. It's also a huge, a big library uh, for the then standards. Uh, Having a 100 of books, that means you are the owner of a large library and for uh, not only in province. In Istanbul also, in private libraries, such was the case. But uh, uh, of course, uh, in Istanbul, there were much, much uh, bigger libraries uh, uh, owned by the dignitaries and uh, uh, high members of the Ulema hierarchy, but in Bosnia, of course, uh, the the there were not uh, people were not that wealthy, and so a hundred of manuscripts is a big library. uh, And also his uh, grandson, his grandson bought some books. He lived in Austro-Hungarian times in Bosnia, but he uh, he had a good command of Arabic and Turkish, and uh, he was an intellectual who lived in uh, two worlds. Still, in a way, in Ottoman culture, but also uh, he knew German and he was participating in that uh, Austrian-Bosnian culture. Um, um, Muhibi had books in Arabic and Ottoman Turkish, of course, and only several in Persian. And this is the normal situation in the Balkans. For example, I work in the uh, library uh, in an archives with uh, uh, 2100 manuscript books from uh, Southeast Europe and we have about 100 manuscripts in Persian. This was normal. As I said, it was limited to uh, a minority of very high educated educated individuals. Uh, After examining his library, I concluded that unlike some contemporary Qadis in the period of decline, uh, who had poor education, Uh, Some sources from that that period confirmed that there were who were not capable of really understanding books in Arabic and Turkish. For example, uh, the the author of a chronicle of Sarajevo from the second half of the 18th century, Mullah Mustafa Bashevsky, he wrote uh, uh, obituaries, necrologies of the Sarajevan uh, inhabitants of Sarajevo, And uh, sometimes he would add, for example, this person uh, uh, was capable of reading uh, Turkish books, which means that it was quite rare at that time. Uh, So still, we can't say uh, uh, anything decisively about the level of the knowledge of Turkish in that period. Uh, And uh, so he obviously... Uh, read these books. He would write something in the margins. He would, uh, for example, um, write in his um, in his uh, notebooks, uh, uh, write some, uh, for example, um, uh, excer- excerpts from the books he read, and so on. But this library is much more than judicial part. Uh, he had works on arabic grammar Arab dictionaries works on versification logic history uh, geography and medicine medicine was very important to him of course at the time when uh, there were no uh, hospitals and uh, qualified uh, much qualified doctors people would of course uh, collect knowledge on healing from uh, old parts and all sides and all texts. Also astronomy, it is known that he delivered public lectures on astronomy. Of course, astronomy uh, that was possible in the then Bosnia. Uh, It was practical astronomy mostly oriented to the, uh, mostly originated from the need to determine the time of prayers and the beginning of the new month and so on. Uh, but also astrology he was very fond of astrology and uh, when, uh, he would sometimes many times write uh, uh, something about uh, i don't know birth of his child or uh, some event and then he would add uh, the uh, place uh, of uh, celestial bodies uh, so it is very interesting for me so um uh, uh, on the on the basis of uh, all his um, uh, notes, annotations in the margins, in the blank leaves uh, of the manuscripts, in his uh, notebooks, it led me to the conclusion that he really lived with that library, that it was not just, uh, as it happened, uh, uh, a collection of books without... uh, um, collected as uh, valuable objects over status symbols or something like that. So I was really lucky to to have this library because some libraries don't have any annotations by the owners, maybe ownership record. And so the other part of your questions, it is very interesting for me uh, how this library remained uh, almost intact. It's not intact. Yes, many libraries in the Ottoman era were dispersed already uh, uh, in the Ottoman era, not after that, and also not to mention the complete destruction during the wars. Uh, because uh, if someone died without leaving a will, and there were disputes between the heirs, uh, then the estate would be, uh, would be uh, sold uh, at public auctions, and books would be sold one by one. The, which means definitely dispersed and their connection would be lost and um, in muhibi's case first he was a Qadi, he knew what would happen to his uh, estate if he uh, wouldn't leave the the will. Uh, I have found one um, uh, one draft of his will in one manuscript uh, where but it uh, refers to real estate houses land shop and so on. Uh, But um, uh, an unfortunate circumstance in the family history contributed to the preservation of the library. Uh, Two sons outlived Muhibbi, uh, Yusuf and Mehmed Shakir. Mehmed Shakir was blind. He was blinded in his early childhood by smallpox. And so he was 17 when Muhibbi died, but Muhibbi uh, obviously Uh, demanded in his will that he gets one half of the library, which is touching for me. And the other son, who was Cadius, his father, Yusuf, uh, he later uh, bought this half from his brother. And fortunately, he recorded this in a manuscript. So the library was again a whole. And the descendants... uh, uh, muhibi's descendants in Yusuf's line t- took very good care of the library and then in uh, nine and even uh, they would uh, make it uh, available to researchers in the 20th century uh, and then in 1960s muhibi's uh, grandgrandgranddaughter uh decided to sell the manuscripts to the National University Library in Zagreb uh, most people would sell it in Bosnia. I don't know the exact reasons for that, but it was a great uh, circumstance also, because in the library in Zagreb, there were only three Islamic manuscripts when when the, the collection came. So there were not many manuscripts in this case, maybe everything would be dispersed, so we would know only that Muhibis' manuscripts were those with his ownership marks, and for the rest, we wouldn't know. Uh, uh, It happened many times when a library entered a big institution. If the person in charge did not uh, write down for every manuscript the, the provenance, and it was often the case that it was omitted, then you you will never know which manuscripts belong to, to one person. And also, uh, in 1992, in the first year of the war in Bosnia, uh, a shell um, hit uh, the room in the house of Muhibic family, where the manuscripts were, had been before they were sold to Zagreb. So it was completely burned. Uh, down and uh, several manuscripts which were there were also burned, so the uh, um, the library is not completely intact. And also, I have found uh, several manuscripts with Mujibis ownership mark in the Bay Library in Sarajevo and in uh, the state uh, in the uh, archives of Sarajevo. And so, uh, how did uh, they come there? Uh, they were sold or donated uh, with the, the whole uh, library of a person. It uh, uh, could have been the family or the person to whom Muhibi or some of his grandchildren uh, borrowed, um, landed, 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 uh, okay, the manuscript, and the manuscript was there, and it came that way to the big institution. So apparently we had a whole series of circumstances, some of them really tragic, but in the end, the library is there. And as I said, it's not just one library, it's a library full of uh, surprises and uh, really nice, uh, um, how to say, I don't know, a lot of uh, uh, sources that I really didn't expect to find. So every day was, well, a surprise. So,
0: so yeah, I mean, all of these fascinating sort of unique little aspects or, or intimations or hints of a kind of wider literary cultural world that you're able to draw out from the from the manuscripts. Indeed that the personal dimension that you've mentioned too I mean this is this is really intriguing and that leads me to ask then what what is it that Mohibi's library's contents the the scribblings on some of the the manuscripts what do they tell us about book culture in southeastern Europe in the first half of the 19th century and not least, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the, these are manuscripts. The first printing press doesn't come to 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 Bosnia, to Sarajevo until 1866, so more than a decade after Mohibi's death. So, yeah, you know, what else do we learn then, for example, about the circulation of these manuscript books, the the interplay of languages that we've touched on, the the writing of marginalia, scribbling down the side of a of a, of a manuscript, or or this miscellany genre that you've mentioned, called the the majmua? Uh,
1: Yes, his library really speaks of his uh, predilections and can't be uh, generalized, because, for example, when we compare it with the library of a Sufi sheikh, uh, uh, Sheikh Sirri, very famous from Bosnia, in his library, uh, there are uh, mostly uh, texts from the field of mysticism. Muhibi's library has a much wider variety of subjects. Nevertheless, there are also common features of book culture in the Islamic world, and more specifically in the Ottoman culture. And all of them can be found in Mohibbe's library. Like the first characteristic is that all the books are in Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Turkish, Arabic and Persian. Uh, the languages of the Ottoman written culture, the textual culture of the Muslims educated in uh, educated elite and in it uh, what we can find it's uh, the absence of dialogue with the other cultures and uh, in the whole library there is no one letter of Latin script or uh, uh, all the Bosnian script or uh, Cyrillic script uh, so, um, uh, as I said, there was no, not much uh, interaction between these, uh, I would not say, high cultures, because I don't want to uh, apply this uh, binary division like high and popular as two separate uh, entities, because uh, in this research, it also appears that you just can't. Uh, can't look at culture in this way. Um, so, uh, except for these words translated into Bosnian or from Bosnian, uh, there is nothing. Uh, everything is in Arabic, Turkish, and Persian. And since Muhibbe was an active reader, he often inscribed some notes in his manuscripts. And um, uh, it is a uh, when when he wrote. Uh, marginalia. It was not something that you would maybe expect like a personal opinion or something like. That. unfortunately I would love to find it. but generally these marginalia are mostly um, lexical glosses or for example, uh, cit- citations from other uh, other books, other texts uh, from the field. Um, and uh, but this was normal. It's not just in Muhibi's case. And uh, also, um, these ownership marks were very interesting because in them he sometimes mentions all the his uh, ancestors, which uh, enabled me to uh, to reconstruct uh, to a certain extent his family tree, and. Uh, also, there were references to as to where he uh, acquired the manuscript, like I bought this book in Istanbul uh, in the year this and that, or I bought this book at the auction of the estate of the pride of Professor Muzaffer, Muzaffer Izade and so on. So, uh, also the ownership marks of previous owners. Uh, show that some of Muhibi's manuscripts had traveled a long way from Mecca or Damascus or Cairo before uh, they became his property. Um, in some manuscripts, we find a series of ownership marks revealing the history of the individual manuscripts. But in some others, we find uh, traces of an opposite practice erasing these Marks erasing everything that belonged to the previous owner. I don't think Muhibi has done it because it was only in like one or two places. But it happened. We we see it from time to time. Um, aside from purchasing books, Muhibi also tried his hand in copying because uh, he wanted to have some texts in his library and he uh, couldn't find it maybe in the market. So he took. Uh, the book from someone, and transcribed it, uh, copied it, and so that's how he copied, for example, a collection of sultanic uh, legislations, canons, uh, he needed it in his everyday work. He also uh, copied uh, uh, fatwas, the uh, legal opinions issued by uh, jury consults, muftis, and um, also, in one manuscript, he copied both uh, texts from uh, a law and from medicine. Medicine, is also, as I said, favorite field. And then he would add the colophon, the last part. When you, when a scribe copies something, he adds colophon, and he would say like uh, copied by a humble one who is in need. Of the mercy of the Almighty God, Mustafa Muhibi, the scribe in the court, and so on. So, uh, um, uh, the most abundant in records are his notebooks. Uh, they're called Mejmuas. Uh, it's the Arabic word, word Mejmuah, and uh, the Turkish is Mejmuah, and it means collection and uh, i would say miscellanies, but uh, in modern scholarship uh, they say no 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 it can't be this term is um, uh, now not very um, uh, <laughs> i don't know why because uh, miscellany can uh, uh, can uh, refer to the variety of texts but also that the manuscript was composed from different units and then bound in one book, but I, I would say uh, personal notebooks. It's it's good enough for me. Muhibi had three notebooks, uh, uh, which were completely his, and several others which he uh, bought at the estate of deceased persons uh, at uh, auctions of deceased persons' estates. And uh, that also makes relative the use of personal. So you know, when you have diary, you don't want it to be <laughs> to be sold like that. But medmas are not diaries because there is not no systematic uh, uh, writing about uh, the events. Uh, they are not autobiographies. Uh, They have a variety of contents, but I think they can be uh, perceived as a kind of ego documents, because although there is no, or very rarely, uh, an I in them, everything that is inside testify uh, for the, to the predilections of the person who decided to who uh, who deemed worth uh, some contents worth mentioning and worth keeping, and so in muhibi's majmas we find excerpts from the books he read, copies of court documents, uh, lists of his debts. Uh, at the beginning of his career, he was not very wealthy, so he had to. Um, to uh, borrow some money, but to to the end of his life, by the end of his life, he became quite wealthy. And then uh, uh, records of events such as earthquakes, floods, fires, Uh, mostly calamities, plague, etc. Also the executions of some persons after the riots, records on uh, uh, births and deaths mostly of his children. And that is how we know that he had uh, not less than 10 children. And uh, most of them died in a very early age. Then there are um, many of his uh, family uh, members uh, died of plague. Uh, Then there are sayings, aits from the Quran, supplications, prayers, etc. Diverse advice for for protection in general, then protection from disease, uh, protection from uh, theft, for example. Uh, And uh, also medical advice, but some of them belong to the field of uh, herbal medicine some to the field of theurgical medicine and some to completely magical practices. There are instructions for divination also. And um, in this uh, part, like magic, like uh, um, uh, different kinds of superstition, like uh, advice how to make people who sit together, see each other's without heads or things like that. And also records of some uh, uh, strange and wondrous uh, uh, events uh, like a child who was born without eyes and without, I don't know, uh, with, things like uh, he says that it happened, he never says that he saw it. So um, it is uh, very interesting. Uh, these are snippets and uh, fragments, but once uh, 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 when they are included in uh, microhistorical research and anthropological research, they enabled me to write a study about the life world of Mustafa Muhibi. And uh, to conclude that in his uh, uh, life, in his mentality, uh, the uh, uh, mystical Islam and also the Sharia law and also magical practices, and astrology, which was frowned upon by many members of the Ulema, because it was, it is the um, attempt of fathoming fathoming uh, in God's secrets and so on, uh, there uh, they existed in uh, uh, in harmony, uh, uh, and uh, also uh, I could see some traces of uh, interconfessional. Um, um interprofessional cooperation especially in the field of protection and healing and it is known from other sources that bosnian muslims bosniaks would uh, uh, seek uh, the the help of christians and also the christians would ask for example Hoja from bosnia to pray for example for uh, the uh, healing of someone from their family it was it is well known and you can see some traces in uh, in uh, Mohibis, uh, in Mohibis library so there is for example one magical practice like how to stop bleeding uh, you take blood to write uh, something which goes like Isa, son of Miriam, like Jesus, son of Mary, uh, came out with a bloody sword in his hand. Go away, blood, I beseech you, by Isa, son of Miriam. And uh, what I found important to say that uh, Mohibbi was deeply immersed in that uh, syncretic culture, uh, and he didn't write it down as someone who is collecting folklore material. No, it, these all these are his beliefs. It, it is everything that he uh, needed in his life, or he thought that it would help him. So, apart from official re- religion to say, he also believed in such things that today we call magic, but at that time these people would never call it, would never dub it like that. Uh, and he Never, of course, uh, uh, separate something like this is this is from uh, uh, popular culture. This is from high culture. So I think that also this shows that we shouldn't uh, really uh, research cultures in that way.
0: Well, this is altogether intriguing, Tatiana, and and really eye opening mohibi is clearly a, a man of many parts with some curious interest but as you pointed out these were interests that were an integral part of being a bosnian muslim in a kind of multi-religious setting in 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 his lifetime and you've also touched on one other aspect of of, of mohibi's life as a sort of man of letters that he also wrote poetry he's not a famous poet but still, he wrote poetry, it was the kind of thing you, someone like him would have done. So as we close, can you give us a sense of the of the poems of this late Ottoman, European, Muslim man of letters? Uh,
1: yeah, I'm... Y- yes, he wrote poems of different kinds, uh, panegyrics to his uh, contemporaries, uh, panegyrics to viziers, Uh, We can see some utilitary uh, motives, Uh, but uh, uh, I I, uh, haven't concentrated uh, on uh, his poems which are maybe uh, uh, good in a literary sense. What was interesting for me were those poems which uh, testify, which uh, talk about his uh, everyday life, for example, or about some exceptional events. Uh, for example, um, or, or also about some persons, because uh, it, it was only one poem about the death of his son, Ahmed, that uh, informed me that uh, he had a son named Ahmed, who died young. And uh, some poems, uh, one poem was inspired by the aforementioned loss of territory in favor of Serbia. It is a lament in which the Ottoman Empire is mentioned with bitterness and disappointment. This is when you see that these ties are you know, are becoming loose. He says, destroyed is the Ottoman honor, sold in plain sight and vanished. So many lands and villages, so many regions, all gone to the infidel. It is one, two lines. The poem related to everyday life, uh, to some habits and rights were, uh, these poems were especially dear to me. Uh, There is a poem composed during preparations for a spring picnic. Uh, in fact, a dervish gathering with his brothers. Again, he mentions his pure friends. Uh, the poem is full of humor and in it, Mohibi mentions various foodstuffs uh, they were planning to take with them like baklava and pilav and so on. And he explicitly says he, since the wine is forbidden, there is a compote out of necessity. And uh, that is how uh, poems that cannot be Consider the most exquisite points of the Bosniaks in the Ottoman Turkish language, Gain their values as sources for a microhistorical study.
0: You brought to life beautifully this collection of books and how it reveals to us a whole somewhat vanished or certainly very changed society in Southeastern Europe. Dr. Tatjana Pejvukic, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbos Chamber.
1: Thank you, Nile, for this pleasant conversation.
0: Thank you again.